0: To want to become a leader, I don't really want to follow somebody whose aspiration is to be a leader. I want to follow somebody who has a compelling vision that has to be done. And they're good at engaging others to come with me and let's go make a difference in people's
1: lives. That's Dr. Henry Cloud, acclaimed leadership expert, clinical psychologist, and New York Times bestselling author. So
0: if you want to know if you're a leader or not, turn around, see if anybody's behind you.
1: I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of CRISP, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. CRISP started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Dr. Henry Cloud to discuss why your success in life is equal to your ability to confront difficult situations, the motivation shared by the most effective leaders and why transformational leadership focuses on unity rather than division.
0: The climate we live in, if you want to start an explosion, just open your mouth and you can pick an issue, but it is a tough place to lead now if you want to be a unifier and not a divider. Our biggest problem right now
1: is division. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Dr. Henry Cloud is a world renowned author whose 45 books have sold over 20 million copies worldwide. As a clinical psychologist and leadership expert, Dr. Cloud works with executives and leadership teams in a variety of industries to achieve improved productivity, alignment and success. I began our conversation by asking Henry about the genesis of his leadership journey
0: it began by um i was a competitive golfer and i got recruited to play college golf and i had i was pursuing that dream and that's all that mattered to me i happened to be at that time an accounting and finance major and i always thought if i didn't do something in the golf world that i would go to law school so i actually always wanted to be an attorney and then halfway through i had an injury and my game was suffering i was not playing well i had to quit They couldn't fix my hand, and so then I had a sort of wake-up call in life and started studying psychology and a lot of, you know, spiritual development stuff, and I got my life sort of back on track, you know, the existential crisis of a 20-year-old, right? And so in that, I got really interested in psychology, and then I went into the field of clinical psychology. My first job was in a leadership consulting firm, and so I actually started out as a clinician, but with an emphasis on working with high performers and businesses and CEOs, both in the clinical side and the leadership side. Then I started a company uh, later in my 20s, actually. I decided, why don't we go buy a psychiatric hospital and and one that we can control and do right? I went out and raised the money and put the team together and went out and tweaked the model a little bit and started a company and had hospital units and treatment centers in about 40 markets in the Western United States. And so I ran that business for 10 or 12 years and then sold it to a private equity group. And then by that time, really loved working with CEOs and businesses And that would have been kind of late 90s. And that's what I've had a boutique practice. I work with CEOs of public companies, Wall Street firms, all the way to pretty large, you know, private, private entities and enjoy it. I just love working with CEOs and companies and their cultures. So that's the short version.
1: So I read, and I believe this is in your bio, but I wanted to ask you about this, if you could help me define this, because it says that Dr. Cloud became interested in how clinical psychodynamic ego psychology and object relations theory integrated with human performance past the clinical areas. If if you could elaborate on what that is.
0: I don't know what bio you. that bio must have been written for like a graduate school or something. But it does get us into kind of what I believe about leadership. You know, when I first went in this field and I was trained in all those schools of psychology, that particular description, that's really about character structure. And it's how humans are, are glued together. By character, I don't mean just morals and ethics. That's, a, that's an aspect of character function, but also emotional intelligence, your ability to persevere, how you lean into crises. Do they excite you? Do you resolve them? Do you get angry and scream at everybody? Do you have, you know, executive functions to be able to finish a project and allocate resources? All that has to do, said in another way, is somebody ready, aim, fire, or are they fire, ready, aim? That's a lousy leadership style, but it comes from how somebody's glued together. So I really got interested. And if you go to every board squabble I've ever been called into, the CEO and the chairman are at war, or the board's got to remove somebody from a leadership position, or even in departmental squabbles, it is just never about, it's never about the person's IQ or about their business acumen. It's always about their leadership style and these character logical the way the equipment is glued together. So I got really interested in the way that human construction interfaced with leadership and getting results. And that's that's kind of what all that means. I got really these fields weren't talking to each other. You go to the leadership literature and you know what, everybody's got a problem. If you're good at something, you're screwed. Because you're good at law or you're good, you know, we're talking to attorneys, you're a litigator or, you know, you do M&A or, you know, you do contractual stuff and you're really good and you, you develop an expertise and then everybody comes to you, crap, I got more work than I can do. then you take on an associate. Now you got a team. Well, you're really trained to do litigation, but now you're a leader. You got two jobs. You were trained for one of them. You weren't trained for the other one. And there's a whole discipline of leadership that is just like learning law. You know, it's just like, how do torts work? How do, you know, you gotta learn this stuff. And so I looked at all that leadership, which is very important stuff, but then people go out there and try to pull it off. And then they find out they're the tool and they're the ones that has to cast vision. They're the one that has to create strategy or execute. Or what if you're conflict avoidant and you gotta hold people accountable now we gets into the personal issues. So I just really came to believe that those two were, I call it the middle space. And that's where I hang out in between how humans work and how leadership works You know, putting those two together. That's kind of how I see it.
1: And, and when it comes to leadership, where do you see most CEOs and business leaders go wrong? They
0: create teams and organizations in their own image. Meaning that, Every CEO, every leader is going to have some signature strengths, right? And they're also going to have some characterological strengths, like the way that they just are as a human apart from their gift set, right? Some are highly relational. Some are more introverted. Some are highly confrontational. Some are direct. Some are more kind of consensus building and all of that kind of stuff. That's just kind of personal makeup. But what happens is when you start to run an organization there's a there's a reason and this isn't just CEOs it's it's people that lead departments and all that but there's a reason why we use the words CEO as opposed to COO or CFO or CMO or whatever it's chief executive officer now if you get into the psychology that is just, I mean, that's, that's neuroscience. You have a prefrontal cortex that does something called the executive functions of the brain, all right? Now, easy way to think about this is a German Shepherd just barks, right? You know, the postman college, FedEx, she just barks. You've never seen a German Shepherd or a Doberman bark and then stop and go, I wonder if that was helpful. Is that gonna get me closer to where I wanna be on Thursday? Did I bark loud enough? See, they're just running along their patterns. Well, most CEOs, they just bark. They see a crisis, they run in there and they do it. They see an open market, they run in there. And that's how they're wired, which is great, except they don't have all of the gifts of the executive functions. See, an executive has got to number one, See something that doesn't exist. A vision you gotta have a desired future state. Well, I, I see a day when this firm has a hundred different attorneys in several different lines, and you know, we're changing community. There, there's a vision, all right. Well, then what does your brain do? If I'm gonna, if my brain says I'm gonna walk from here to there, the next thing my executive functions do is they, they don't just start walking, your brain can't walk. It's got to pull the talent together. So now I'm going to need a couple of legs. I need a couple of arms. And now, okay, I got my team together. Well, you got to motivate that team too. You got to send out impulses and get them going. You got to keep them engaged. So now we start walking. Well, how are we going to get there? Am I going to walk? Am I going to skip? I'm going to ride a bicycle? No, you come up with a strategy and a plan. Well, you start doing that. What if you wander off? Well, you better be measuring the right things and then holding yourself accountable, and then you fix it. That's what an executive does, all five of those functions. Well, I've never met a CEO that had all five of those strengths, vision, engaging talent, strategy and execution, measurement accountability, and fixing and adapting. Some of them are visionaries and they just launch off. They wouldn't know a strategy if it hit them in the head. Some people are very strategic and they make plans all the time But engaging talent, they're not. So CEOs will they'll try to turn everything into the way they are instead of getting above it and saying, "Okay, I'm not good at this. But my firm, my company, my business, my department, I got to make sure all these things are happening. And once they do that, then you can fix any of them as long as they're not an idiot.
1: And and I want to talk about how people grow and develop and, and even the importance of before you lead anybody else, the importance of leading yourself. Um, I, I saw you post the other day that it's hard to get better at something when you think you don't have a problem. And and I'm curious if that's if that's step one in just in that in that self-awareness.
0: Well, it's self-awareness, but it's also situational awareness and it's also other awareness. So, you know, it's interesting. I've done a lot around and with the Navy SEALs. And my brother-in-law was a SEAL, actually, and, and we lost him in 08. He was killed in Iraq. This is, this is interesting. When a SEAL lands, you know, they parachute in and they land behind enemy lines. They look at their little pocket, you know, GPS equipment and instantaneously, and, and I, I used to say they asked three questions, and one of them told me, we don't do them in an order. You got to know all those three things at once. Here's the three questions. Number one, where am I? See, if, I, if I've landed behind, if i want on Osama bin Laden's roof, I need to know that. OK, so what's my situation? What's reality? As Max Dupre said, the first first step of leadership is to define reality. That's the situation, who I am, what I'm in, all of that kind of stuff. So where am I? The second thing is, where's the enemy? I better know where the danger is, right? But the third question and the most important question is where's my buddy? Because if I don't know the answer to the first two, but I do know the answer to the third one, they can tell me where I am and tell me where the enemy is. So when we're talking about, you hear a lot about self-leadership. Well, self-leadership, I mean, I understand what people mean by that in emotional regulation, impulse control, all that kind of stuff of being in what we call broadly emotional intelligence and self-control, self-regulation, really. But that only comes in the context of relationship. And so another place you said, what's the biggest mistake CEOs make is they do it in a vacuum. You've heard them say, you know, it's lonely at the top. Well, it better not be. I'm serious. I mean, if you mean it's weighty at the top, yeah, it's weighty. But A, if you're carrying that weight by yourself, you shouldn't be. And if you're lonely, that means that you know I mean, what president's gonna go to war without the joint chiefs around them? And so that's another mistake that CEOs make. I wrote a book called The Power of the Other, and it's about high performers are never doing it by themselves. And that's a big one.
1: Being a leader can often be thankless and requires significant pain tolerance. I asked Henry why he believes people choose to become leaders, and what the repercussions are if you do it for the wrong reasons.
0: That's a really robust conversation because a lot of people want to become leaders for the wrong reasons. First of all, they have an idealized picture of leadership. You know, I always tell people (laughs) if you want to become a leader, then you need a lot of problems and a lot of pain. And then you, get good at solving those problems. And when you do, then people go, oh, and they give you bigger problems. So you graduate to bigger problems, the better you get. That's your future, right? When the president sits down at his desk every morning, they give him a book of really bad, bad situations. So, but they have an idealized, they see the pomp and circumstance. Everybody respects them and they Sometimes they're trying to overcompensate for their own sense of powerlessness or self-image or whatever. So a lot of it can be wrongly motivated. And that's, I don't know why, I mean, why would they want to do it? Well, that's a reason they want to do it. It's not going to work. Secondly, like you said, to want to become a leader, I don't really want to follow somebody whose aspiration is to be a leader. I want to follow somebody who has a compelling vision that has to be done and they're good at engaging, engaging others to come with me and let's go make a difference in people's lives. Now that's a really good, and it's not even, I'm not trying to be a leader. I'm trying to change something. And when people have a a, a passion and a belief that it can be done and they have the competency to do that, then, and they start down that path. You can't, they can't not do it. Well, they start down that path and, and, and I want to go, I want to go. Can I go? That's, that's leadership. Not, I want to be a leader and everybody get in line. So if you want to know if you're a leader
1: or not, turn around, see if anybody's behind you. And in a way, you, know, you kind of looked at the root of why would someone become a, an entrepreneur or start a business and it, I, I found that when you ask enough why questions it, it typically comes back to freedom and and I've heard you say that freedom equals responsibility if you if you could elaborate on that
0: Well, freedom equals responsibility, which ultimately said correctly equals control, okay and I like to make sure that that Freedom equals responsibility and control equals love, meaning that all three of those have better be equal. So if I'm free to do something, so I start my own business, right? That's an exercise in freedom or autonomy. Nobody's making me. Nobody's telling me what to do. Nobody's going to tell me what it's going to look like, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to start this if I'm an entrepreneur. And that's a great drive that, that that people have. And the good thing about it is if I'm free to do that, now I'm responsible for it, okay? Which means if something's wrong, that's my problem, nobody else's. That's real ownership, okay? But the good thing about taking responsibility in life is if I'm responsible for it, I control it. And if I realize that I'm in control of what I'm responsible for, that gives me incredible agency and I'm no longer a victim. So I got my own business. Things aren't going well. Well, I've got to look to myself to what am I going to do to make that different. And that may mean engaging others' help. But still, I got to ultimately, as I, the subtitle of one of my books says, I'm ridiculously in charge. And a lot of times people start to play victim and they don't realize, no, look, this is your baby. Whatever results you're getting or morale or whatever it is, you're either either causing that or you're allowing it. One of the two, you're either creating it or you're allowing it. That's control. And what an incredibly freeing realization that is. I can actually determine as an entrepreneur, I can determine which way we go, what we do, how fast we grow, how fast we don't, what markets we get into, this and the other. Nobody's telling me, nobody's telling me what to do if I'm in control. And if you're even if you're in a department and you got a good boss, they're letting you operate that day, that way within certain certain boundaries anyway. You're empowered to do that. And then the third piece of that is love. So when I'm executing control and responsibility and I'm using my freedom, I always want to have that measured by, am I doing anything hurtful or destructive to myself or to others? And if you keep all of those equal, that's a pretty good formula. Law is about going into a courtroom and defining who's responsible for what. Well, who had control of it? When it happened, that's a bit freedom and control. And if they do something that's loving, they go free, right? But if I use my freedom and I control to, you know, run this company and I poison a bunch of people, I ain't going free no more, right? Because love broke down. That's what I told my my girls when they became teenagers. Look, you're going to want a lot of freedom. I want you to have all you can get. But your freedom is going to be equal to the responsibility that you use and how much self-control and we're going to measure that by are you doing something destructive to yourself or others. If you keep those realize those are always going to be equal, here's what happens. If you use it responsibly, your freedom goes up, but if you if if the responsibility goes down and you're hurting yourself or others, your freedom's going to go down too cuz I'm going to always make those equal in your life until you're 18 and then you can worry about yourself.
1: And, and speaking of being ridiculously in charge, I want to talk about boundaries. I, I know that this, when this book came out, Boundaries for Leaders, that's one of the things I know you became uh, very well known for. But how do you define a boundary?
0: The same way your attorneys do. A boundary is a property line. When you think of a property line, you know, and you go to a plot map and here's where the boundaries are. And once we know what the property line is, then we know exactly what we're talking about who owns it or who has control of it even if you lease it you've you've purchased control of that you're the you have agency okay so a boundary defines a property line what i'm in control of and own and have the freedom to do what i want to with in this certain lines but once i step over that boundary line now i'm either a trespasser or i'm a thief or I'm an invited guest because somebody else and I entered into a free will choice at will covenant, right? Both executed are so interpersonally, way we define boundaries are you are a person, I'm a person, you're responsible for yourself in control of yourself. Okay, you have freedom to do whatever you want to, and so do I. And that's the way relationships work. Now, if I step over the line and I start to try to control you, manipulate you, violate you, hurt you, you can scream foul. And that's where the property line of setting boundaries and limits becomes very, very important, especially in running a business.
1: And, and I guess the, the final thing I wanted to ask in regards to leading yourself, um, you said before then lead yourself in a manner that protects the vision. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? So conduct yourself
0: and everything you do and make your choices and all of that in a way that protects the vision. Yes. Now, here's the thing. The leader ultimately is the steward of the vision. Okay, it's your vision. Now, that may be the CEO, but it also could be in a department. You know, for example, you work with attorneys. I work with, um, you know, all sorts of companies and. Generally, when you're in the C-suite, right, when you're talking with the CEO, generally there's a general counsel there. Give you a great example of this. Public company, everybody would know their name. They got a new general counsel, and we're doing an executive team retreat, and we're integrating the new general counsel, you know, onboarding, you know, into the executive team. And I'm talking about vision. And we did a lot of work with not only the company vision, for sure, but what is each vice president or, you know, whatever they call them in this, the general counsel, the CFO, the CMO, what's your vision for your department? So here's a great example. We did a lot of work, and this general counsel and his team comes back This is our vision for the legal department of this big company. We are the people of yes. We are the people of yes. Now, what does that mean? Well, generally, marketing wants to do something. They go to legal. No, you can't do that. R&D wants to do something. Well, no, you can't do that. They wanted to be seen and branded, the legal department. You come to us because we're going to work with the law to find a way that you can do what you need to do. We're not just the the no people. See, that's a vision. And you talk about a change in culture with all of those attorneys. And now we're part of we're not just the people that everybody's always bugged at because we say no, but we're working with them. And we're an integral part of this team to find out how we can go do what we want to do. That's a very different accelerant in a business fueled by the legal department because the, the general counsel was the owner of that vision. And so then what's he doing in all of their meetings is they got a very different flavor. And the way they're looking at R&D now is not at, oh, we got these out of control teenagers down there. They want to blow up the farm They're looking at, these are our partners where we can go make a lot of money together and we can go reach our vision. We can go help a lot of people. Let's go figure out, let's get deep in the weeds with them and collaborate and figure out how we can go do this. Totally different culture
1: just because a general counsel had a different vision. And in, in speaking of that, I, I want to go down the angle briefly, if we can, of, of leading others, particularly when it comes to having difficult conversations. And I know you've written a, a book about this. This is, I think, a more popular topic now than ever. Um, why do so many people seem to struggle with having difficult conversations and how most of them approach it versus how you believe they should approach it?
0: Well, why do they struggle? Let, let's get to that first. I remember, I remember I was, uh, back in my hospital days, I was doing a group one one day in the hospital, and these two women got into conflict. Something had happened on the unit. One, you know, we said we always say bring it up in group, right? So they're in group, and and one of them saying, "Well, I didn't like it when you did this," and the other said, "Well, you know," they start talking about it, and they're they're processing this difficult conversation. So I'm looking over here. There's another lady over here. And she looked like my German shepherd when she wouldn't understand something. You know, she kind of turned her head and I said, I, I said, stop, guys. What are you thinking? And she literally she said, I, I've, ne- I, I've never seen that. I said, seen what? She said that. I said, what do you mean that? She said, well, she was mad at her and and she told her and she's listening. And they're working in that. And she said, where I come from, I've never seen that. Somebody would be dead by now. Somebody be hit on the head with a sk- I have never seen that. So why do we have difficulty? Well, a lot of times people come from training grounds, which is basically a lot of times your family of origin, your teacher, your coaches, all of that. When these patterns and maps of the world are getting formed, you've never seen it go well. You've tried to give feedback. You've seen somebody get defensive. You've seen them shoot the messenger. You've seen them never talk to you again, you know, all of this stuff. So a lot of times people are having trouble doing this, but they're coming by it honestly and they've had bad experiences. Secondly, not only do we have bad experiences, but we also lack the skills. You know, you don't have an attorney listening that just read a book on litigation. And now they go do it. No, they did mock trials. They had to develop the skills. They had to write briefs. They were sent back to them. You know, they had to learn to craft an argument. And so one of the big things that's really, really important that we is, do I, do I, am I walking into a conflict feeling like I have the skills and the ability to move towards that conflict? So, bad experiences, lack of skills. And thirdly, we have our own triggers. I mean, every human, you punch the right button and the brain shuts down and the reptile brain leaps into control, which is fight or flight or freeze. And so when you're fight or flight, you're going to push and destroy with anger and persuasion and debating and making somebody see your point, all the things that don't work, or you're going to fly, you're going to withdraw and be silent and not say what you wish you said you had and walk out of the room and think, Dad, dadgummit, why didn't I say, Because the reason is your brain wasn't working and it's not working because there's anxiety and we change that by doing the things that I was talking about. So we, we overcome our maps and we learn skills and we practice So now you got attorneys who have been doing this for 20 years. They walk into a courtroom, they're not afraid. Well, the first time they walked into a courtroom, they probably had to wear it to pins. I mean, they were, you know, there's a lot of anxiety. Well, we get better at it, the better we get at it. So that's why. And you know what? Here's another thing. A lot of it's a mindset. You take a seasoned attorney. This is what I love about attorneys is, you know, everybody rags on attorneys. Well, everybody rags on until you need one. Right? And what does a great attorney do? You're gonna find yourself a lot of times, if you do anything, you know, you run businesses or all this, all of us that have built stuff and run stuff, you're gonna find yourself in conflicts, right? And some of these conflicts are with crazy people. Somebody's gonna sue you that is crazy. And what they're even claiming is crazy. I remember I said to my, my attorney one time, I had a former employee that was. Upset about something. I said, Well, obviously, obviously, he doesn't have a case. The attorney goes, uh, In California, a person has a case that they feel like they have a case in <laughs> And so, you know, some of this stuff, it gets into serious situations and you're in conflicts or a deal goes south or whatever. Well, you know, the client is anxious. Well, one of the things a great attorney does. They have the skills to sit down at this table and get these, these partners that are on opposite sides of the table. They have the skills to get them on the same side of the table and put the problem on the other side of the table. That's one of the big things that I work with is is helping people to enter into, to be like a good attorney and sit down in scary situations and lean into them. The word confront comes from the Latin word to face something frontally, to come together and frontally look at an issue, not be an ostrich and put our hand in this hand, but we're going to look at this issue. It's not an adversarial term. It shouldn't be, but in our heads it is. So we gotta have a mindset of great, great performers lean into, I wrote a book called Integrity, and one of the qualities was to embrace the negative. Great performers, they chase problems, they chase conflicts so they can resolve it to get past that obstacle to the next level. Your success in life is equal to your ability to confront. And that's almost the definition of a good law firm, is they go in and confront obstacles and conflicts with people or potential obstacles and conflicts, face them squarely and find a way through it. And that's a positive thing, not a negative thing.
1: We're seeing more division than ever in our society today. I asked Henry to elaborate on how leaders can approach conflict with compassion.
0: We got practical ones, you have personal ones, and you've got kind of, let's call it the larger Veltashang of kind of where we find ourselves right now. I think that, that practically speaking, what happened in leadership was the things that kind of make everything work, which are how we're connected, what our structures are, our schedules, our routines, the way we do things, kind of what people have control of and what they don't, their ability to exercise their gifts and all that. So you're floating along a certain way. And then COVID comes and it just was like a tsunami that, that obliterated your ability to connect with the people you lead and your customers it did away with all of the structures of used to have meetings here and used to, you know, and schedules and did away with all of that. You don't have control of a tenth of what you used to have control. Of. Well, let's let's go, let's get 300 people together and take it. Oh, well, you can't, you can't do that anymore. And you lost control of everything. You can't go and like execute a lot of things that used to make you thrive. And so leaders, and, and when I talk about it with leaders, I go deep dives in those categories and how can you bring these things back in your organization so people can actually thrive and you can get results? So you got that. That's one of the big challenges. The other big challenge is, you know, we normally have 17, 18 percent of people in the United States that would meet criteria for depression or anxiety or an addiction. And now after, I mean, last last year, I hadn't seen the numbers recently, but it's over 40 percent of Americans reach reach that criteria. So you got a lot of personal pain out there. And if leaders aren't listening and oriented to and helping both inside the tent and in their their customer base, as well as their supplier and vendor, everybody in your whole business milieu, you're going to run into a lot of this stuff and you need to be equipped and oriented to deal with that. And then thirdly, I mean, don't strike a match outside today because there's a gas leak out there. And what I mean is the climate we live in, if you want to start an explosion, just open your mouth and you can pick an issue, but it is a tough place to lead now if you you want to be a unifier and not a divider. Our biggest problem right now is division. And you see it around executive teams, you see it around families, you see it around extended families, you see it in companies, you see it in the society. Where if we if we can't find leadership, so you got people of, you know, Harvard defines a difficult conversation as when you have something that really matters, the stakes are high, you have high emotions about it and you have different perspectives that's when you have a difficult conversation all right well that's where we find ourselves on a multiple in multiple issues so take covid take vaccination take you know masking take whatever you want to take the stakes are high it matters whether or not somebody gets this thing it matters stakes are high the business stakes are high in how you handle whether we open or where we go. The stakes are high. Number two, the emotions are high. This is not a neutral topic. And thirdly, there's different opinions. You put those two together, you have a combustible like array of stuff. Now, when I go into a situation like that, because my job a lot of times is to, whether it's boards and CEOs or departments or executive teams or whatever, My job is to take all of those ingredients, as are a lot of your your attorneys, to take all of those ingredients, okay, and rearrange the way we're putting the molecules in there to where it comes out with something that doesn't explode, it's kinetic energy to drive something positive forward. That's what a good facilitator does with a difficult conversation. So what we need out there right now and what we need inside is we need leaders that that are able to take the divide and sit above it and are transcendent to the positions, but they're united or they're leading towards the higher purposes and the higher goals and be able to bring those positions together to get to the mutually desired upon result. Okay. And we don't have leaders like that. A lot of times we have leaders that fuel the divide because this greatest psychological tool, one of them, the bad one, the greatest bad one is the victim persecutor rescuer triad. And that's when you, when leaders do this all the time, they'll, they'll take a group that feels like they're victimized or they will convince him that they are. And these are the bad guys over here and I'm gonna step in and be your rescuer. Okay, so now I'm in power, right? Well, that's not what a good leader does. A good leader transcends the divide and pulls everybody into unity. Now in that they will execute justice if somebody's getting victimized, they won't allow that, okay? But they they will execute it in a way that also tries to, to redeem the whole picture. And we don't have a lot of that happening right now. We got division upon division upon division. We need transcendent leadership that can bring people back
1: together. Why Why do you believe we're not seeing more of that, more of that unification, if you will? Is it, is it just easier to be... Divisive in, in the sense? Is it just kind of a lazier way to lead, or is it more effective, perhaps?
0: Uh, <laughs> well, it doesn't pay well. <laughs> right. My point being, <laughs> how many <laughs> how many how many job openings does one side post and says, hey, come come help me get along with that group over there? Right. So in in that's part of the problem. They're looking for the leader that can squash the other guy. Okay. So I'd say that it's hard to find the job opening Well, because it, here's the problem. And you see this in any, in any kind of reconciliation process. What a reconciler has got to do is got to go get each side really hearing and understanding where the other side is coming from, even if you don't agree with it. Well, in today's world, If you just try to even acknowledge something from the other side, well, let's listen to that. What is this concern? You are canceled. You're gone. I mean, I literally did a post on one of my things about the, the importance of compassion in resolving a conflict. Okay, that is a neurological fact, right? I did a post about use compassion. It helps or something. I got one group of hate males saying, trigger alert, trigger alert. You're telling me to go be compassionate to my abusive, whoever it is. You're trying to get victims hurt. I did not say anything like that. In fact, all of my writings would say the opposite. No, you have boundaries. You have limits. You don't subject yourself to. But that's how the little bitty spark can explode things. It is a very difficult scenario out there. But we need, we need people with the skills who can. Can go out and do it,
1: and and I guess that's where the opportunity comes in. Are you optimistic in the in the years ahead, as from the standpoint of a leader and and their role in helping to solve this? I
0: I am optimistic, but I'm optimistic in the way that I know leadership works. Here's what we know about optimism: is it fails, and it always succeeds. The ones that make things happen are always the optimists, always. Every research project in the world has ever been done on reaching goals and performance shows that optimists win, always, always. But optimists fail if they're blind optimists and all they see is the positive. It's like, was it General Stockdale that said, basically, A leader is going to accomplish great things when, number one, they have the 100% conviction and belief and hope that, yes, we can win, we can beat this, aligned with 100% open eyes and embracing of how hard this is going to be and what the obstacles are. When the Navy SEALs are commissioned to go, you're going to go get this guy. If they don't believe and have hope that they can do that, it's a no go. It's a no go. They don't do the mission. That's why they get to to the hit go button on assessing risks and whether or not we go forward. I just did an event with with uh, with General McChrystal, and they, they talked about getting to that right number. Okay, they got to know we can do this. But how do they spend the next however many days looking at every possible way that they can get shot? Because this is not going to be easy. I'm certain we can do it, and here's the obstacles. I'm optimistic when we have leaders that truly believe, and I believe this, I believe that in the universe, good triumphs over evil. But I also believe that in certain compartmentalized spaces, evil can triumph over good if it's compartmentalized in a closed system and doesn't have access to redemptive forces. That's why in a company, you can't have division, for example. So I believe that good is stronger than evil. There's no such thing as darkness. That doesn't exist. When does it get dark? when light isn't there. Okay, so am I optimistic that light dispels darkness? I know that's true. The question is, do we have the people that know how to shine the flashlight in a way that doesn't get them shot at or blinds the people that they're trying to get together? It's a tough moment, but yeah, I'm optimistic. You've always done it. Why? Well, from my perspective, this isn't our place anyway, it's God's and God's got a plan with a lot of he what's he always done? He said, you know what this is a mess. Hey, hey Moses, you go get him out of that. This is a mess. Hey Martin Luther King, you go get him out of that. This is a mess. Hey Abe, can you go get him out of this? And I just have that belief and I think we're going to see these leaders emerge.
1: And, and as we come to a close, this, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, um, what does being a game changer mean to you?
0: You know, we've all had that experience where <laughs> the game is going in a certain direction <laughs> and something changes the whole game. And now we're losing or, and now we're winning or now nothing's happening. Or the second way is, and probably the bigger way, is the way the game is being played gets changed. You know, and we can, I mean, Jack Nicholas did that. When I'm a competitive golfer, Jack Nicholas came along and at 18 years old, Bobby Jones, the greatest player of all time, said these words. He plays a game with which I am not familiar. He changed the way it had been played. Okay. But then the third thing that, and this is what we need today. The third thing that game changer means to me Not only that you change the game, we're losing, now we're winning, to change the way we play the game, we change the game. And today, if we could change the game we're playing from annihilation, shutting down the other side, all that kind of stuff, to the kind of things that we've been talking about, You know, if a law firm, if a department can change the game from being the regulation parent to the accelerator of how we get deals done, that's a game changer. That's what it means to me. If Steve Jobs can democratize listening to a song from, I don't have 12 bucks for an album, but I got 99 cents, that's a game changer. Change the game, change the whole game.
1: I want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Henry Cloud for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Henry said that if you want to know if you're a leader, turn around and see if there's anyone behind you. Only by having a team of aligned and accountable individuals can you affirm your position as a leader. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Dr. Henry Cloud, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time, and we'll be talking to renowned attorney Ken Feinberg, who served as a special master to the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Fund and is the inspiration behind the film Worth, starring Michael Keaton.
0: Money is a pretty hollow substitute for death or life-altering injuries. And the idea that you would provide a mother and father who lost a son at the World Trade Center, you provide them, you know, $3 million and expect thank you, justice? No, it's mercy, but it's not
1: justice. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.